Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Great worship this morning. It's certainly good to be back uh, in the uh, house of God with all y'all here this morning after a few days away. Thank you for that privilege. Welcome to those of you that are worshiping with us over at the Spanish Trail campus this morning. We are praying for you today and pray that God will be richly uh, involved in your life and a great source of encouragement to you this morning as well. And welcome to those of you that are worshiping wherever you may be in our online community, either on Facebook or on our website. We're glad everybody is here today. The Bible is open to Acts chapter 17 this morning. We come to a great passage of Scripture as we continue to um, unpack these great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as we look at the missionary thrust of the early church Today, we look at a great passage of Scripture, a personal favorite of mine, perhaps even my favorite section in all of the book of Acts, and that is, of course, Paul's visit to the great city of Athens in Greece, the birthplace of modern democracy. And Athens, of course, was the great cultural and philosophical center of the ancient world. Paul had never been there before. Paul is indeed in the midst of this second missionary journey, the most exciting, I think, of the three of his missionary endeavors. And um, we had gotten him uh, the last I was here to Macedonia. And uh, Paul had had a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over to help us. And so they crossed the Aegean Sea and landed in what is today modern Greece, then a region known as Macedonia. And Paul established together with his team, Silas and Timothy and Luke, they established churches in many of the major Macedonian cities, Philippi, the capital of Macedonia, Thessalonica, and then, of course, having been run out of town from Thessalonica by a mob of angry Jews, he lands in Berea where he goes to the synagogue and finds a very receptive audience there. And just when Paul starts to think, man, things are looking up, God is blessing, finally we land in a place where the people want us here, those angry Jews from Thessalonica find out that he's gone to Berea teaching the same thing, and the Bible says they follow him there and create a mob riot in Berea, causing Paul to have to leave. Now, let me just say, when you're preaching the gospel in a particular town, and they run you out, you know they don't like you. But when they follow you to the next town and run you out of there, you know they really don't like you. Can I have an amen this morning? Well, that happened to Paul. And so his comrades are concerned about him. And the Bible says in order to keep him from harm, Silas and Timothy put him on a ship. And they send him south to Athens and probably just tell him, here's the deal. We're going to stay behind. We're going to get things stabilized here so that the work can continue. You need to get out of town because they're after you as the ringleader. And so just go to Athens. You've never been there before. Get a room at the Hilton. Uh, Walk the streets. See the sights. It's an outdoor museum. You'll enjoy your time there. Just try to relax until we can get down there to you. And we'll join you, and we'll see what God wants to do next. And so Luke, with that in mind, picks up the narrative and tells us what happens beginning in Acts chapter 17 and the 16th verse. Let's take a look together. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy, at Athens, 
his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? I'm sure there are people live here every Sunday saying the same thing. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like a lot of people I know on Facebook and Twitter. Amen. This is the Word of God. Let all who agree say amen this morning. Now, I want you with that in mind to imagine with me this morning as Paul walks these historic streets of Athens, this magnificent, colossal cradle of Western democracy, Western civilization, a place where the statues and the monuments were many, their marble glistening and the hot sun of the day. I want you to imagine with me as he walks through all of that, recognizing this incredible truth. As best we can tell, the Apostle Paul was the only Christian in the city, the only one. Now, let me ask you, how would you respond, and what would your approach be if you moved here to Pensacola, Florida, greater population, some 350,000 or so in the metropolitan area, and you moved here knowing that as you went out of all the people who are walking, living, working around you, that you were the only one who trusted in Jesus Christ and followed him with your life. I had a group of college students over to my home for dinner a month or so ago, and we were dialoguing about spiritual things in my living room after the dinner was over, and one of the young ladies who goes to a small private college in another state, an adjoining state of ours, looked at me at one point and she said, you know, it's just so hard living on a college campus, being a follower of Jesus Christ, especially where I go to school, because best I can tell, I'm the only Christian in the whole college. The only one, I've never met another believer. I love the intellectual stimulation. I love my major. I love my teachers. I enjoy the school. But there's not another Christian presence on the entire campus. And that night, a month ago, I said, let me tell you this, by means of encouragement, you're the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens. That's exactly what I told her. Place teeming with sophistication, intellectual greatness, bunch of smart people live there, but the only one with a Christian worldview was the Apostle Paul. Now, you know what I mean when I use the term worldview, don't you? Because you surely have one. You may not know how to articulate it, but everybody I know lives by a worldview. That's basically how you look at and categorize and understand life. 
How do you filter the experiences of your life? How do you filter God? What's your understanding of God? What's your understanding of life? What's your understanding of death? What's your understanding of work? What's your understanding of commerce? What's your understanding about this thing that we call life? That's what a worldview is. A worldview is a system. It's a filter by which you understand and evaluate life, by which you articulate what is the meaning of life and what is the purpose to life. And everybody has a worldview. Darwinism is a worldview. Capitalism is a worldview. Communism is a worldview. Humanism is a worldview. Atheism is a worldview. And so is biblical Christianity. That's our worldview in the house of God this morning. And the apostle Paul, for this brief window of time, 1,000 968 years ago was the only human alive in Athens who understood life according to a Christian worldview and how his Christian worldview affected his visit to this great and historic city is what we want to look at and examine for a few minutes today. What did Paul see when he got to Athens? How did Paul react? Where did Paul go? What did Paul do? What are the marks of a Christian worldview living in a lost and pagan world? Well, there's a lot that we could say about that this morning, but let's just stay anchored to the text for a few minutes, and let me give you three marks of a Christian worldview in a lost world. And the first is simply this. If you're living with a Christian worldview, you're going to be keenly aware of how lost the world is around you. You're not going to be able to not notice the lostness of your city, your state, your world, your country. You're aware of how lost the world really is. Now let me just say that by the time Paul visits the city of Athens, it's long removed from its glory days. Uh, The city of uh, Athens is an ancient city, and it was probably at least half a millennia, 500 years removed from its glory days, from its peak during the time of Socrates and Plato. They were long dead by this time. Athens had been defeated. It had been subjugated. It was now part of the Roman Empire, living under Roman authority, and its population had dwindled to about 10,000. So by the time Paul was there, it was really not a very big city. It was what we would call a medium-sized city. But it was still important and significant, and everybody loved to go there. It was the center, as I said a moment ago, of Western civilization, the cradle of Western democracy, still highly respected as a place of architecture and culture and philosophical thought. So when Paul got there, the first thing that he did was probably what I would do is just walk the streets and then take the whole thing in. What a marvelous place to be. He walked around as a tourist, seeing things that he'd never seen before. As he walked from the port of Filero there, the modern port is still there today. It's the place where rich Greeks like Aristotle Onassis parked their big boats. Paul would have landed in the same place and gotten off a much smaller boat, no yacht, and he would have walked toward the city center, and the first thing that he would have done is walk through the Athenian Agora, the marketplace, a place that would have been teeming with people, a place where the government met and philosophers debated, a place where goods were bought and sold, and then he would have eventually climbed his way up 
to that wonderful, magnificent center called the Acropolis. And he would have seen all of these majestic temples high above the city, the magnificent colonnades and the wonderful uh, temples of Aphrodite and Athena and Nike. And of course, he would have seen the Parthenon in all its glory, built 500 years earlier by Pericles. Can you imagine that? The Parthenon was 500 years old when the apostle Paul saw it for the first time. There's no building in the United States 500 years old. I've been to Monticello and I've been to Mount Vernon and they're half that age. And so this was a very ancient city and Paul would have laid his eyes on all of that and yet that's not what captivated his attention. What captivated his attention weren't all those buildings and all of those columns and all of those statues. Verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. It's a preacher walking around in town. The first thing that he noticed is how lost the place was. His eyes weren't trained on material things. They weren't trained on worldly things, but on spiritual things. And first and foremost to him wasn't the beauty of the city or the charm of the city or the sophistication of the great city, but its wretched spiritual condition. It was totally given over to idols. The word that's translated here in our English Bible, full of idols, is one word in the Greek New Testament, and it's a very rare word. It's the only place it's used in the whole New Testament. The idea isn't so much that the city was full of idols. Museums can be full of idols, but they may not affect anybody in the museum. The import here is that the city was not only filled with idols, and indeed it was that, the ancients used to say it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a man, and that was true. Over 30,000 different idols that we're aware of today that were erected in some form or fashion in the city of Athens. Remember, it only has a population of about 10,000. So there were more idols in the city than there were human beings. Statues in the altars of these gods were literally all over the place. You could see statues of Apollo and statues of Mercury and of Venus, all the storied gods of Greek mythology. The most important, of course, in the town being the two massive statues of the patron goddess of the town, Athena, for whom Athens was named. You walked up to the Acropolis, there would have been an outdoor statue made of bronze of Athena, 30 feet tall. It was said that when the sun hit the tip of her spear just right, you could see it out at sea 40 miles away. Then you walked into the Parthenon, and inside the Parthenon was the majestic temple, or the statue, rather, of Athena Parthenos, made of ivory and overlaid with gold. The statue of Athena inside the Parthenon was 10 feet taller than the one outside the Parthenon. Statues, idols, everywhere. But that's not what the word means. The city was literally swamped by idols. The idea is influence there. We might say that the city was literally idled over under the influence of those idols. That's how bad it was. Filled with idols, marked by people living under the influence of idols. And a lot of people will hear that sitting here in 21st century Western America, Pensacola, Florida, and many of you sitting out there thinking, thank God we don't live in a place like that. Are you sure about that? 
I'm telling you, the more things change, the more they stay the same. All you have to do is visit any of the great cities of our country, and I'm just telling you, you'll find the same thing, only without the statues. You'll find places smothered over in idolatry. They're not statues or images of gold or marble or bronze, at least not in our country. They're that way in some places in the world still. But really, what is an idol? You know what an idol is, don't you? It's a God substitute. You could be carrying around an idol in your wallet. Some of you drove your idols to church this morning. Some of you will drive home to your idols when church is over today. It's anything or anyone that you love more than you love God. That's an idol. Anything that is the object of your passion, your desire, your attention, your affection, more than God, becomes by any definition an idol. And contrary to what any so-called atheist might say, and I don't believe there's any such thing as an atheist, because everybody worships something. It may not be the true and living God, and it may not be a statue, but everybody worships something. There is a person alive that doesn't focus his heart, his attention, his affection, her loyalties on something. People in Athens, for example, worshiped a god named Bacchus who was the god of wine. Let me ask you this, is alcohol worshiped as an idol in America today? Absolutely, just without a statue. People in ancient Athens worshiped a god called Mammon, the god of money and material possessions. Can I ask you a question? Is the god of money and material possessions worshiped in the United States of America today? Yes, only without a statue. There would have been a, a temple with a statue in it of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. The Romans called her Venus. The goddess of love and sex. Is sex gratified and, and popularized and worshipped in America today? Just drive up and down the street and look at billboards. Watch commercials on television. Sex is worshipped in America today only without statues. I could go on and on and on today. The images change, but the game is still the same. And the reason that most people don't know and don't follow the true and living God today is because they're worshiping gods of other kinds. And I'm sad to say that sometimes that's true even among the people of God. Have you read your Old Testament? You're familiar with Israel? How many times did they turn away from the true and living God to worship the gods of their neighbors? And every time God had to discipline them and judge them in order to bring them back to him, it happens in churches all over the world. People often honor God with their lips all the while their hearts are what? Far from him. They give credence to God vocally but follow other gods visually. Let me ask you a question. Do you notice idolatry when you see it? See, this is one of the marks of living with the Christian worldview. It's the first thing that marked Paul when he got to town. He wasn't taken in. He wasn't going, ah. He was going, oh, because of what he saw. 
And if you look hard enough and live with Christian worldview, you'll recognize the same thing Paul recognized the moment he walked into Athens. People by the tens of thousands are worshiping the wrong thing. And when you notice it, it'll break your heart, which leads me to the second mark of a Christian worldview, and that is you're jealous for the glory of God alone. You notice idolatry when you see it, the lostness of the culture, and it makes you jealous for the glory of God. In other words, it provokes a reaction within you when you see it. See, you're really not living with the Christian worldview if the idolatry that you see, the idolatry that you notice in the world doesn't move you deep within your spirit. If you're not sad for the predicament of lost people who are bound for hell because they don't have a knowledge of the true and living God and they're caught up in the worship of other things, they would never say it was worship, but you and I know that it is. If that doesn't move you, then something's not right within you or me spiritually. In other words, you've got to care that people are walking around in spiritual darkness. If you recognize the presence of idolatry but are not provoked by the idolatry, then your worldview is not Christian, it's secular. The Bible says in verse 16 that when Paul saw that the city was covered by idols, his spirit was what? Say it out loud. Provoked within him. We've seen this word before in our study of Acts. It's that word paroxysm. He has a paroxysm, which mama said was to have a fit. Amen. So he does. He's stirred up, agitated in his spirit. We might say riled up. Same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the reaction of God when the children of Israel built the golden calf. God was what? provoked to anger. And Paul had exactly the same reaction. We would call it righteous indignation, righteous anger, the same kind of anger that Jesus had when he went in and started kicking over tables and chairs in the temple when the money changers were in control. He was moved because he couldn't stand to see the name and the glory of God profaned in such a blatant way. Let me ask this morning, is that the way your spirit is stirred whenever you see God's honor diminished? When you hear his name taken in vain? I mean, you don't have to go to the other side of the world to see it, man. It's all around us in many ways just as blatant, just not with statues. I mean, it's on billboards and print media. You can find this kind of idolatry in stores in restaurants, bars, theaters. You can see it on cable, subscription services. You can find it on ball fields. Oh, my, I'm plowing close to the corn now, aren't I? There are a lot of stadiums that are just temples because people love what goes on inside those stadiums more than they in love with Jesus, an idol by any other name. See, it's just not as overt We're not bowing down before a carved image and we're not throwing incense into a fire. We see those kinds of things and I've seen them on the mission field. And they literally turn your stomach. But in the good old USA, we label it entertainment and we call it the American way. And we think that makes a categorical difference, but it does not 
to God. Because if you're a Christ-centered disciple who lives with the Christian worldview, you'll recognize a lot of that for what it is, idolatry. And its presence will provoke you because it robs God of his glory. I'm not saying any of those things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, many of those things are good. Food is good, fashion is good, cars are good, houses are good, property's good. All of that stuff has good stuff unless you love it more than you love God. And the question becomes, are you jealous for the glory of God alone in your own life and the life of your city? Do you long for God alone to be worshiped and adored? See, this is what it means to live with a Christian worldview. You notice the lost or vast lost condition of the world. You know idolatry when you see it, and it does something to you. It moves you, even angers you. Because of your jealousness for God, You never want God to be robbed of his glory. This is what it means to live with a Christian worldview. You recognize lostness when you see it. The lostness provokes you. And then thirdly, you understand the need to engage the lost culture. That provocative reaction moves you to do something. You don't just shake your head and you don't just go back home and wring your hands out and say, oh, 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 me, what are we going to do? Just call me Eeyore. No, you just, that moves you to do something. And a Christian worldview recognizes I got the gospel and it's my responsibility to try to invoke what kind of change I can, even if it's one starfish at a time. You heard a story about the guy that was on the beach, a starfish by the thousands washed up on the beach, and he's picking them up and throwing them back in the water, and the guy walks up to him and says, what in the world are you doing, man? You can't even count the number of these starfish out there. And he reached down and picks another one up. He said, do you actually think you're going to be able to save all of these starfish? And the guy reaches down, picks one up, and says, no, but I can make a difference in this one. And that's what we're called to do. Paul wasn't going to be able to win that whole city to Christ, but he could start somewhere, and that's what you see in him. He's supposed to be down there on R&R, but he isn't laid back at the pool at the Hilton. What Paul saw, I mean, this is just the way Paul is wired. I've said this about him before. Paul was a zealot, and he never stopped being a zealot even after he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, once a zealot, always a zealot. He was always type A, and he always would be. He couldn't relax, didn't know how to do that, didn't know how to to disengage. What Paul saw and what Paul felt moved Paul to do something about it. He didn't hide from the lostness. He engaged the lostness. The Bible says the first thing that he did, according to his custom, is he went where? To the synagogue. And he preached Christ to the Jews and to the God-fearing Greeks who were there which was, of course, his typical pattern. But not only did he go to the synagogue, verse 17 tells us he went to the marketplace, to the agora, down below the Acropolis, on the lower level, the street level of the city. And the agora, of course, was the center of public life in Athens. Crowds teemed. 
In order to buy and to sell in the marketplace, city officials met there to conduct their business. And the philosophers, of course, still too many to count in Athens, would gather together, and it was in the marketplace, in the agora, at the stoa among the colonnades, where they would meet together, and they would talk about new ideas, and they would dialogue, and they would debate. And Paul was no intellectual lightweight. He was trained in what we would call the university systems of Tarsus and Jerusalem, And so Paul was an intellectual heavyweight, and he could fit right in there, only he was speaking a different language, basically, and spiritually. And while he's there, Luke tells us that he engaged in this spirited debate with two groups of philosophers. Did you notice them as we were reading? Epicureans and Stoics. You know who those were? I I don't, books have been written about what these guys believed and taught. Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch. Epicureans were the materialists of the day. Here was their motto, there may be uh, a divine presence, but the divine presence isn't personal. You can't know him or her or the plural gods, uh, nor do they know you personally. And so you only go around once, once you die, that's it, your body just goes back to the elements. And their motto is, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. You all know anybody who lives like that today? How about grab all the gusto, man? It's Miller time, right? Grab all the gusto that you can. Do the best you can with life. Enjoy life. Live life to the fullest. Do the do. All that stuff. This is materialistic philosophy. And it is ripe in Western civilization. It has never gone away. The more wealthy we have become, the more... There are Epicureans at Hillcrest this morning. And the city of Pensacola is filled with them. They would not know how to identify their worldview, but it's an Epicurean worldview. Make as much money as you can because money is about everything in life. Take as many vacations as you can. Get as much downtime as you can. Enjoy life. Minimize pain. Eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. That's Epicurean philosophy. Everybody tracking with me? Your neighbors are Epicureans. Don't tell them that, but they are. And then there are the Stoics. And we get the word Stoic from Stoic philosophy. Uh, Britishers are known as people with a stiff upper lip. You don't show a lot of emotion. Life is hard. The Stoics were the tree huggers of the day. They saw God in everything. You couldn't know God, and God was not personal God. But God was everything, and everything was God, and you don't have any promises in life. You just do the best you can with your lot in life. Quit whining about life. Life is mostly bad, but there'll be some good, so take the good with the bad and quit whining about it because nobody wants to hear it. Just do whatever it takes to be self-sufficient, and when life is over, that's it. And there are a lot of Stoics in the world. Don't think there's a meaning in life. Don't think there's a purpose in life. Really don't have a reason to be happy, have a hard time being happy with life. I know a lot of Stoics too, just kind of drifting along, no real sense of direction or purpose, just trying to make it, trying to endure, though they don't know why they need to endure. Both these philosophies, materialism, humanism, 
They're just all over the place still today. And that's what Paul faced as he debated in the marketplace. And it's what you'll face as you talk and live among lost people every day. And when you do, when you talk from a Christian worldview or from a Christian perspective, many times they won't like at all what you have to say. Have you ever had that experience? You got the best news of all and they don't want to hear it. In fact, they'll think you're just a little bit nutty. That was the case with Paul. They didn't understand his reasoning. They didn't understand his lingo. They didn't understand his Christianese. They didn't understand what he was preaching. Verse 18, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They didn't get it. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's an interesting thing because the Greek word for resurrection is the Greek anastasis, sometimes pronounced anastasis. You ever heard of a girl named Anastasia? The name Anastasia means resurrection. And so these philosophers were listening to Paul who's preaching, everybody in the house should know by now, the preaching in Acts is about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. So they hear Paul preaching about Jesus, masculine, and anastasis, feminine, Jesus and resurrection. And you know what they think? This guy's trying to introduce two new gods into the Greek pantheon. We don't know these gods. That's why they're saying, it seems he's introducing foreign divinities. So they thought that he was a believer in Jesus and the patron of Jesus or the cohort of Jesus called Anastasis, resurrection. And so it's total confusion and nobody's, have you ever had anybody react like that when you were trying to share your faith in Christ? I just don't get it. I just don't believe it. Well, they were trying to understand it but they couldn't. So they bring Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a court, the supreme court of the city-state of Athens. They served kind of as guardians of the city's religion and the city's culture and the city's education. So they brought him to the supreme court because these guys oversaw the culture of Athens. And they were very particular about it, kind of like the French. You don't mess around with culture. And Socrates, who of course died, was convicted 500 years earlier by this same court, the Areopagus. For what? Introducing foreign divinities, corrupting the minds of children and teenagers. And so Paul was being dragged before this council on what amounted to very serious charges. He's introducing foreign divinities, something that we're very particular about here in Athens. And so they come before the court. The court, Areopagus, took its name from the place that it originally met, Mars Hill, the hill of Ares, Areopagus, the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. The Roman equivalent was Mars. Ares Hill, sometimes known Mars Hill, that was a specific physical location where this court actually met. It's like the name Supreme Court. If you were to say, I would like to see the Supreme Court, I would need to know, are you talking about the nine people who are the Supreme Court, or are you talking about the big building that is the Supreme Court? Because the same name is used for both. Everybody with me? 
So when we say Areopagus, we're talking about a court and a hill just northwest of the Acropolis where the Parthenon was, where they actually met. And it's to this very imposing group of city leaders that they bring Paul. And Paul is going to give us the final step of a Christian worldview, and that is the content of the message, but I don't have time to do that today, and you're thankful for that. So next time, we're going to look at Paul's sermon before the Areopagus, sometimes known as his Mars Hill sermon. We'll get to that next time. But what I want you to notice today, let this be the final word, is that Paul's Christian worldview is determining everything he does. Are you noticing that? How he sees God, how he views life, how he views death, how he views money, how he views circumstances, how he views sex. It's determining everything he does in this brand new location. Everything he sees, everything he feels, everything he does. He sees the majestic artistry and the architecture. It doesn't move him with wonder. It sickens his spiritual stomach. His life is motivated by the presence of the true and the living God, and he wants the world to know this God that has radically changed his life. He wants the world to know the name of this God, and he wants the world to glorify this God alone. And to that end, without even waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up, for who knew when they were going to get there, he engages all by himself the sophisticated but lost culture with the gospel of Christ that had changed his life. And that's how you know the guy lived with a Christian world view. We don't live in Athens. I don't want to live in Athens. I like where I live. But let there be no doubt that our city and our world isn't any different. It's not. We still live in a vast mission field where most people are covered over by idols and they are categorically lost. And just as our culture is the same today, by and large, so is the remedy for the lost spiritual condition and so is the message. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Namely, that there is one true and living God. You cannot fashion that God into an idol into a graven image, and that God cannot be worshiped because he is not contained in temples made with human hands. He's a personal God. He's a living God. He's the true God. He's a God who knows you. He's a God you can know. And the way you know him is by trusting him to remove the impediment called sin that a holy God might now fellowship with your life, bring you into his family as your child where you will be his responsibility and his greatest love forever and ever. He's not an unknown God. Though much of the world doesn't know him, but he's a God you can know. And if you'll submit to his leadership, He'll change your life forever. This is God's word. Let all God's people say, amen.